Join the Hamden County Sheriff's Office medical team. We offer professional medical and mental health care during and after incarceration, following a revered public health model. We're hiring for nursing and supervisory roles, offering a less hectic case than hospitals, a state pension, benefits, and potential retirement after 20 years. Our firm but fair approach to corrections has been emulated nationwide. We're not your average law enforcement agency. Visit our website to learn more. The ideas and opinions expressed in this show do not reflect the views of WHMP or Saga Communications. This show may contain subject matter not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I set my heart out to prove my innocence by any means necessary. Brian Banks. Hi, I'm Lisa Riley, and each week we're here to share the narratives of people and programs, both inside and outside the criminal justice system, the reality of life behind the wall, prison reform, innocence projects, and the stigmas that surround those who've been impacted by the justice system, and of course, the inspiring stories that prove that failure isn't final. This is The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. I am extremely humbled and grateful and excited, if all those work together, to have joining us today from Temecula, California, Brian Banks. And if you don't know the name Brian Banks, I highly recommend you Google it immediately after the show. Brian is a nationally recognized advocate for systemic and prison reform. He's an author. He's the subject of a movie that came out in 2019. He's a motivational speaker, and he himself is an exonerated individual who was wrongfully convicted at the age of 16. Brian, thank you again for spending time with us today. Welcome to The Hustler Files. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Thank you. So why don't I let you take the floor and give us a little bit of background in your own words on exactly what that journey was that put you in prison. Yes, it's, uh, you know, this is a story that goes back to the year 2002. 16 years old in high school, was an All-American football star with a bright future ahead of me. Um, But then everything changed. I was wrongfully accused and convicted of a crime I didn't commit. Uh, And this experience flipped my world upside down. I was sentenced to prison, losing years of my life, future uh, dreams that I had ahead of me, ultimately serving six birthdays is what I used to always look at it as my 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, my 21st birthday, I believe 22nd, I paroled at the age of 22, August 29th, 2009, and, you know, naive into thinking that the worst was over, um, but then was subjected to an additional five years of strict custody parole, which required me to register as a, a sex offender wherever I lived. I was, I had a mandatory sentence of five years parole, and I was subjected to all types of rules and restrictions. So in total, um, I lost 10 years of my freedom to a wrongful conviction. After years of that, that struggle, Uh, With the help of the California Innocence Project, I was finally exonerated. It was a moment (laughs) that was uh, indescribable, uh, the relief and the vindication. Uh, But I knew that my journey didn't end there. 
Uh, I wanted to use my experience to make a difference, to advocate for those who are still unjustly behind bars and to work toward a more just legal system. That is so admirable, especially after what you went through. So I just want to set the table a little bit more based on what I've read and what I know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I so, know you're going to dig into it, so I just I wanted to give you the, <laughs> the, the brief overview of such a crazy story. Well, like I said, I saw the movie when it first came out, and I just... Every time I think about it, I still get goosebumps, which I always say is a good thing because that means I'm on the right path. So you were being scouted in high school by USC, correct? Yeah. Not only USC. At this time of my life at 16, I was 11th in the nation as a middle linebacker playing football for one of the most notorious high schools in the nation, Long Beach Poly. Today, I believe Long Beach Poly has the most NFL players um, from one high school to ever make it. So it's, it's a really prestigious school when it comes to sports or in, in particular football. And I was just finishing my junior year in high school. I was going into my senior year. I was going to be a one of the leaders of our team. And I was being recruited by every, almost every D1, D2 school, you know, prestigious school that you can think of. Um, to a point, there was a, a few of us at our school, maybe about four or five of us that were being scouted by so many teams and receiving so much recruitment mail, uh, we had our own mailboxes on high school campus. Wow. Just to receive that mail. It was just stacks and stacks of mail on a daily day basis. So I was, you know, I was being recruited by all, all the schools. Uh, but USC was a school that I grew up being in love with, you know, being right down the street in Long Beach and then being over in LA. It was just a pipeline, you know, to, to the dream. The LA dream was to either go to USC or UCLA. Uh, for me, I picked the, the Cardinal and Gold. So, yeah, it was an amazing time at that at that age, you know, to finally be seen and recognized for something that you're good at. So it never would have crossed your mind in a million years, and that's sort of a rhetorical question, I guess, because you end up leaving class, meet a girl, stealing a few kisses, and all of a sudden police are at your door arresting you for rape. That's correct. I was this. This was the summer um, heading into my senior year, and a group of buddies and I had just. We were in summer school, and we had just finished school, and in a few hours, uh, football practice was going to start. We were hanging around campus, just waiting for time to pass. And as we were waiting there, we saw a police officer pass by us, and we're sitting at these tables outside. Then we saw another group of officers come on campus, and some more officers. And we, we were sitting there going, "Man, what?" You know, we had we you know Long Beach Poly is, is at this time was not in the best neighborhood. I'm not sure what the neighborhood is like today, but you know anything could be going on in this in the neighborhood for you to see police. But we you know we were definitely caught off guard by the number of officers that were there at that time. Right after we saw those officers, teammates' father who would always go to the the football practices, he walked up to us as he was coming onto campus. And he pulled me to the side. He said he wanted to talk to me. So I was walking on campus, and I overheard the police say that they were looking for a kid by the last name of Banks. He's like, "Did you get into any trouble today?" And I said, "No, I, you know, I, of course not. I'm, you know, I'm here. I'm waiting for practice." He said, "Okay, well, you know, maybe I heard wrong, but you know, maybe I, maybe I didn't. Maybe you should see what's going on." So I go actually check in with my younger brother, who was a freshman that year. He was at basketball practice. I walk over on the other side of campus. I pull him out of practice, and I question him, what did you do today? I didn't do anything. I, you know, I've just been at practice. I went to school, everything. Okay, go back. 
I sent him back. And I dismissed it. I like, let it go. I went back and sat down. And I remember I was wearing this hoodie, and I had this hoodie over my head. And as I was sitting down, corner of my eye, I can see a girl that I had earlier that day. I had left my class to go make a phone call. And during that phone call, ran into someone that I had known for a number of years, a girl. And she and I went to an area on our campus that was a known make-out spot. Um, we had both agreed to go there. And while we were there, we kissed, touched, we hugged, and that was the extent of it. Fast forward, here I am dismissing a teammate's dad's claim that he heard the police looking for a kid by the last name Banks. And from the corner of my eye, I see her, her mother, her older sister, and a number of police officers exiting the campus. And I remember having this kind of like feeling that immediately I was thinking, what did she do? Because she was girl at the time was known, you know, in our neighborhood, on our campus as uh, a bit of a troublemaker. Um, that's neither here nor there. So in my mind, I'm thinking maybe, you know, this girl did something and someone saw us walking through campus together and they're associated me. So I get up and I leave the campus. I go across the street. I run across the street to a friend of mine's house where other players waiting for practice are at his house playing video games. Busting the door and I'm telling them that think the police may be looking for me and everyone's laughing thinking I'm joking because it just didn't make sense for you know for this to be happening to any of us like the police are looking for me so I'm I get on the phone at his house I call my mom I'm telling her the same thing and she's like what for what for I'm like I don't know I don't know and she's saying did you you know did you do anything today you know get in trouble I said no I didn't do anything you know mind you I'm I'm not telling her how I made out with some girl on campus because I'm not thinking that that's the issue. And I'm like, Mom, I, I did nothing that, you know, for police to be looking for me. So she's like, okay, well, don't worry about it. And um, she's like, if anything, if you still worry about it, just come home. And so I did that. I skipped practice. I went home. And uh, I got home. My mom was there, and I talked to her about it. And she calmed me down and said, listen, it, you know, if you didn't do nothing. Don't worry about what's going on on campus. And left it at that. I went took a shower, tired, I got in my room and fell asleep. This is before the internet, this is before cell phones. You know, you I went I took a nap. I went to sleep and I remember being in the middle of my sleep feeling this crazy pressure just slump into my back as I'm laying on my stomach. And um I try to jump up, you know, because I'm being awakened in a really crazy way. And I hear this voice just telling me to stay still and embarking these commands. Don't move. And put your hands behind your back. Handcuff me and stand me up. And there's a few police officers in my room. They got their hands on their guns. And a few of them are out. And I'm, mind you, I'm 16 years old. Like, I'm a big kid. I'm you know, probably 6'1". I'm 220 pounds, maybe. You know, I'm, you know, I'm a big kid. But I'm still 16. You know, I'm in a kid's room. There's two twin-sized beds inside the room me and my brother share. And, you know, we've got our pictures all over the walls and trophies and, you know, all the ribbons we've won from track and different things. And, you know, the, the kids wrote. I'm snatched out of bed. I'm handcuffed, yelling for me to put, you know, find clothes, point out something to wear. And I'm being rushed out of my room. And as I'm being rushed out, my mom's, she's on the floor and she's screaming. It's crazy. Just, you know, it just was a dramatic, dramatic experience. And, put in a police car, I'm sent off. And that was the beginning of, you know, five years and two months in. I, I never came home. I never went home after that. They, they picked me up. First place I went to was a hospital. They performed a, a rape kit on me as the aggressor. 
you know, and, and what a lot of people don't know, and, and you know, you, you know, you mentioned wanting to talk about things that I've never talked about. You know, to experience at the age of 16, have your blood taken, have your fingerprints taken, to to do a, a DNA test for a, a rape incident where they have to pull your hairs from your private area to collect them, uh, and they have to scrape your skin in certain areas to collect DNA. You know, these are things that you don't hear about because you're dealing with so much that you don't think to share these experiences later in life. But you, you talk about being accused of taking advantage of someone and being accused of kidnapping someone when all the while you are the one being taken advantage of. You are the one that is being kidnapped from your family, from your mother who's still at the house screaming and crying hysterically and has no clue what's going on. You are the one that's being touched inappropriately, but you're being accused of those things. I'm sitting here just mesmerized by the story. Talk about emotional impact at 16 years old and no one that you know is around you. Your mother's not there. Your brother's not there. Your coach isn't there. If I could fast forward a little bit, because we're going to have to go to break in a minute. But from there, you went to the local county jail? From there, I was 16, so I was still a juvenile. So they sent me after sitting in a precinct for hours and hours and hours. They finally sent me to Los Padrinos Juvenile Hall. Uh, This is in California, Southern California. And I was, that's where I began my, my incarceration. From there, I was found unfit to be in juvenile court. I was tried as an adult, which is a, an ordeal within itself. Maybe for another episode, we can talk about that. But that sent me to adult court, which sent me to another institution, juvenile institution. I was there for I thought, what they call fighting your case. I was incarcerated for almost an entire year before I was forced into taking a plea. And when we come back, I want to talk about what happened with that plea deal. And I still have so many questions, and and I want to talk about how you managed to keep your sanity through the five years and two months that that you spent behind the wall. But we're going to take a quick break. Brian, if you can please stick around. Listeners, grab another cup of coffee because you're not going to want to miss this continuing conversation with Brian Banks. You're listening to this week's with the Hustler Files. Hello, this is Patrick Kaling, Sheriff of Hampshire County. This year, my office received the prestigious Fatherhood Award from the Children's Trust, a state child abuse prevention agency, for our work with the Nurturing Fathers program. We are proud of our partnership with the Children's Trust and firmly believe that strong, safe families help build strong, safe communities. If you're interested in joining our award-winning team, visit our website, HampshireSheriffs.com, submit an application online, or call and ask for our HR department. Welcome back to this week's The Hustler Files. I'm Lisa Riley, and if you're just joining us, we're here with Brian Banks, a nationally recognized advocate for systemic and prison reform, author, motivational speaker, and himself an exonerated individual who was wrongfully convicted at the age of 16. Brian, thank you again for spending time with us today. We just came off of the first segment uh, talking about how the arrest happened and the processes up into that point. And so we were talking while we were at break, and you said that you were sitting in jail waiting and waiting, and, and the police officers and the people in the jail kept saying, you know, you'll be out of here soon. And you must have been thinking, oh, well, they have this all wrong. I didn't do anything. I would say there are many 
psychological experiences that you go through during incarceration, especially as a wrongfully convicted person. I want to say it's the hope factor, where you think that at some point they're going to open that cell door and you're going to be released because they figured it out. You know, that first moment that I was incarcerated right after I left the hospital from being picked and probed at, you know, I sat in that precinct for hours, maybe five or six hours. And I remember that entire time sitting there and being told everything was going to be okay. They're just figuring it out. They're just asking questions and talking to different people. You should be fine. And then then they said, okay, well, we just got to take you over here to Los Padrinos Hall for a night or so just so we can really understand what's going on. And then you find out you have a court date. And then you say, okay, well, I've learned, you know, that you you have to be seen within 72 hours or they'll drop the case. Okay, so maybe they won't call me to court within 72 hours. So you don't eat, you don't sleep, you don't talk to people, you don't come out to sell. You sit there and you hold your breath for 72 hours. And I remember going to court and standing in front of that judge and the judge schedules another court date for I believe it was like two months. And I, I, I remember breaking down in that courtroom, in that first court day, my mom and the in the audience having to console me and tell me to calm down. When they told me that my bail was set at $1.125 million and that my court date was not for another two months, it was no longer holding your breath for 72 hours. You know, now it's, you're in jail for two more months. And even after you break down and you psychologically lose it there, you try to muster up a little bit of strength and say, okay, I'm just going to knock out these two months and then I'll be home. So did you have an attorney or were you working with a court-appointed attorney at that point? My mom had, unfortunately, you know, this ordeal. We had never experienced court or what we, you know, were supposed to do. My mom hired an attorney, which required her to sell her house, sell her car. Basically, she had to put up everything to afford this attorney. But yeah, we had a paid attorney. So two months goes by, you go back to court, you have this paid attorney, and what happens? Well, right away, this attorney was very into trying to convince me into taking a deal. Even when I was in juvenile court, she has suggested that I plead to uh, plead no contest and serve what's called juvenile life. Juvenile life is your and you go to California Youth Authority, which is prison for underage juveniles. And juvenile life is to the age of 25. And obviously, I'm innocent. I'm not staying here in jail. I talked to my mom and said no. And it just continued from there. I lost what's called a fitness hearing, which determines you fit for juvenile adult court. I was tried as an adult. I went from facing juvenile life at the age of 25 to facing 41 years to life in prison. I was, you know, the California kidnapping charge carried life. I had a kidnapping charge. I had six counts of sexual assault. Did you ever get to face your accuser? No. Well, yes. <laughs> uh, years later, after serving practically my entire sentence, including parole. One day I was online looking for a job and got bored and decided to get on Facebook. And this is after serving prison sentence, being on parole for four years out of my five-year term. And as I got on Facebook, I saw I had a friend request. I clicked on the box and it was it was her. Uh, nine years later, uh, requesting to be my friend on Facebook. That's very bold of her, considering she put you away. Uh, I would say beyond beyond bold. I don't know if it's if you call it crazy or anything, but it just nothing 
made sense. And it even made my the experience even more traumatic for me now having this person reach out to me. Okay, so let me rewind a second because I want to go back to the plea deal. So you were offered a plea deal and that was the five years, two months with five years parole versus a life sentence of 41 years? Yeah, I was proposed a deal by my attorney. Um, said that this was a deal I had to take. And that deal was that if I pled no contest to one count of rape, they would drop all the other charges. A no contest means that I'm not saying that I'm guilty. I'm not saying that I'm innocent. I'm, I'm saying that I'll take the burden of whatever sentence you want to give me. Basically, I'm allowing you to call me guilty and sentence me to prison. What I read was that you thought going into the plea deal that you were just going to get put on probation. Correct. So... The other part of that plea deal was that if I pled no contest, I would undergo what's called a 90-day observation at Chino State Prison. And during that 90-day stay, I would be interviewed by a psychologist and a counselor who would determine on a ladder system whether I was to receive felony probation, three years in prison, or six years in prison. And these were based on interviews and what they, you know, their research into the case and everything. So being taken that deal being forced into that deal, which is a story within itself. I went to Chino State Prison the day after my 18th birthday. I slept in the juvenile hall. I woke up the next day and was sent to prison. I was interviewed by a psychologist and a counselor during my stay, and they couldn't believe I was there. They couldn't believe that I was even being accused of this. They read through the case. They looked at what was missing, what was there, and they felt that I shouldn't even be in jail for this. They recommended the lowest term, which was the felony probation, even though they said that they wished that they could recommend less than that. But I got the favorable report. I went back to court after the 90 days in prison, and the judge sentenced me to the higher term of six years anyway, with no explanation, no reasoning. I had never been arrested before. I had never been in prison before. There was no evidence of this crime whatsoever. Girl had six different stories as to how everything had happened. And still, because I lacked proper representation, because we have a flawed system where district attorneys even when they don't have a case, will sink their teeth into it anyway and try to force out a plea. And because of those factors, I was subject to what I was subjected to. So I also read that one of the other things you were confronted with when you were being asked about your plea deal was the fact that you were told you would probably face a white judge and an all-white jury, which would basically put a nail in your coffin. Correct. I was told by my attorney, who was a black woman, you go in there and you fight this case and you go to trial, you will lose because you're a big black teenager. And that's what they will see when you walk into that courtroom. You're a football player. They're going to think that you're conceited and they will find you guilty. Or you can take this deal and I can guarantee you, Brian, I promise you, you will get the probation. You will go home. But you got to take the deal now because I got to go in there and tell them what you want to do. No guidance and, and, and put in a corner and being rushed and forced with no opportunity to think. So you take the plea deal. You find out the judge gavels you at five years, two months. What prison did they take you off to? Yeah, I got sentenced to six years. I had to serve 85% of that time. Um, all violent offenders have to serve 85% of their sentence. And I was sent first to Kern County and I went to Delano. And I was processed. They had a uh, entry. That's where you go for classification and entry. They classify you through counselors, through a number of 
a sequence of questions which will make your points either go up or down. And wherever your number settles, that is the level of prison security that you'll be placed on between level one, two, three, and level four being max. Um, level three, mid-max. Level two is uh, mid, mid-low, and then you have your low. So I was sentenced, <laughs> it was crazy, 27 points and above will get you uh, a level three, which is medium-max. And I had 29 points. I was two points over. So they sent me to the Javetine to a prison that was 30% of those people there, I believe, had life in prison were not going home. And mostly everybody else was serving very high sentences of 10 years or more. And I, I went from there. And then I went over to CMC, from Delano to CMC, which was a California men's colony, which is in Northern California. From there, my classification points dropped to a level two. And you go from cell living to dorm living once you leave three and four and you go to level two and one. So I went to dorm living, which took me to Norco, North Corona, uh, which was CRC, California Rehabilitation Center. And then I paroled from there uh, at the age of 22 after being shipped around through three juvenile halls, one, two, three prisons, two county jails over a span of six years, uh, five years, two months. So when you were ready for parole... Did you find a new attorney or did you go back to the original one? So when I paroled in the state of California, it's a bit different. So the only time that you will be required to have an attorney for parole is if your parole is based on a two-part sentence. If you are sentenced to four to 12 years or eight to 15 years, then you need an attorney to help you navigate through trying to get out at that lowest number you can get out at. For me, I had a straight sentence. It was a six-year sentence. You serve 85%. You parole after 85% of that time. So I didn't have to go back to an attorney. I paroled alone with home to my family. Crazy thing about that, I will add, is that my attorney, who forced me into that deal, promised me that she would file what's called a remodification of sentencing because she felt that the judge was too harsh in my sentencing and she almost acted as if she didn't know that that was going to happen. I kind of felt like she knew I was going to get the higher term. She said, I'm going to file for remodification of sentencing, but in order for me to do that, you need an appellate attorney to take on your case. We have one of those attorneys in my office. I'm going to send you this document which releases me as your attorney and that person's going to sign on as your attorney for the appeal. She sent me this document in prison when I was being classified. I signed it, sent it back to her, and she disappeared. I never heard from her again. Wow, that is a lot to unpack. And so we're going to take a break and don't go anywhere because we still have to come back and wrap up this week with The Hustler Files, so stay tuned. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work an active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. We are back, and thank you again to Brian Banks for joining us today and sharing his very personal story. Today's thought comes from Ram Das, 
When you go out into the woods and you look at trees, you see all the different trees. Some of them are bent, some of them are straight, some of them are evergreens, and some of them are whatever. And you look at the tree and you allow it. You see why it is the way it is. You sort of understand that it didn't get enough light, and so it turned out that way. And you don't get all emotional about it. You just allow it. You appreciate the tree. The minute you get near humans, you lose all that. And you are constantly saying, you are to this or I'm to this. That judgment mind comes in. And so I practice turning people into trees, which means appreciating them just the way they are. And that's a wrap on another Hustler Files for this week. You can find all of our shows on the whmp.com podcast page or any of your favorite podcast sites. Have a wonderful week ahead. And remember, don't be ashamed of your story. Like Brian Banks, it will inspire others. Stay tuned for part two of our conversation with Brian Banks and hear how his perseverance turned tragedy into triumph right here on The Hustler Files. (laughs) 